This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by the official Star Trek Starships collection. Get the Enterprise D for only $4.95 when you sign up today at st-starships.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 201, A Matter of Time. Welcome into Mission Log, Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast, podcast, I'm podcast, I'm Ken Ray, Ken Ray, and I'm John Champion. Ken, sounds like there's something wrong with your recording. To, 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 to the uninitiated, it may sound that way, John, stupid, John, stupid, to the novice, the dumb, stupid, the dumb, but to those who remember when, when, when entertainment when, when was entertainment, this is, this is the Max Headroom Filter. You, 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 uh, want to try it? Sure. Each week on Mission Log, Mission Log, we watch an episode of Star Trek, taking it apart for messages, morals, and meanings, and meanings, and, and figuring meanings, and figuring out, out whether it all stands the test of time, of time, test of time, time. Sean! The 80s called, called, they want us back, back, back. Let me turn this off, turn this off before it gets, uh, gets, uh, gets, uh, obnoxious, obnoxious, obnoxious. Too too late, too late. (laughs) There we go, okay. Uh, This week, a matter of time, the one where a guy comes from the future to study the 1701D, its crew, and the happenings on Venthera 4. Or does he? In a moment, John will rock trivia like no other, but first... But first, a few words about a bunch of starships. John, if you're like me... Actually, you kept them all. Everybody else, (laughs) if you're like me, you had pictures of spaceships and sci-fi toys all over your room when you were a kid. But when you became an adult, you put away childish things and graduated to a better class of toy. Now, if you haven't done that, congratulations. It is graduation day. The official Star Trek Starships collection is coming for you. Twice a month, you'll get a new ship, some Federation, some from other worlds. You'll get a magazine filled with production notes, design notes, and in-universe info about the ship. You'll get a digital download of the magazine so you can keep the magazines pristine, like us collectors do. And you get all that for 20 bucks a month. Two ships, two shipments. 20 bucks a month. And maybe the best part of this whole thing is you can get the demo model. You can get the whole thing going with the Enterprise 1701D. Maybe you've heard of it. You get that, and it's accompanying magazine for $4.95 to try it out. The address to do that is st-starships.com slash mission log. st-starships.com slash mission log. Trying it out not only supports this show, it also gets you a fleet of fun. Now, here's one thing I can tell you. Uh, We cannot say enough good things about those ships. Mm -hmm. And we heard that from a lot of people. (laughs) (laughs) We've told you a lot about them. We want you to give them a try. So that address one more time, st-starships.com slash mission log. And a huge thanks to Eagle Moss uh, for sponsoring Mission Log. Um, of course, we do still want people to send us pictures of their ships and things, right? Oh, yeah. 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 That, and, and comments, too. 
Oh, yeah. Other things as well. Not just pictures of your <laughs> ships. Yes. We're going to go ahead. We've decided to not make it so that you have to, you know, support our sponsor to email us. <laughs> right. Or or call us, or, you know, any number of ways to get in touch. Uh, Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember, we may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Time now for John to rock trivia. John. All right, Ken. I will rock it just for you. Today's <laughs> episode, A Matter of Time, was written by Rick Berman. We've heard that name before. Of course, executive producer of Star Trek The Next Generation. It was directed by Paul Lynch, and we have seen Paul Lynch's work before on Next Gen, uh, starting out with The Naked Now, and then 11001001, and mm-hmm. Unnatural Selection. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry about that. Just, no, you don't don't that rush one. through 11001001, dude. Well, I want to make sure that people remember 11001001. Yeah. Well, I think you, you pause after that because that's, you know, that's quite an episode. It is. Yeah. <laughs> it is. Now, interesting enough, Paul Lynch calls this one his least favorite of the Next Gen episodes he worked on. Hmm. Uh, but don't worry. He will be back for more Next Generation, and then he'll be back for more of Deep Space Nine. And uh, he also directed some Moonlighting. We have to make that happen. <laughs> what, moonlighting? Yeah, the Moonlighting podcast. We have to make that happen. Too, too yeah, much crossover, do. too much stuff. We have to make that happen. Way, way too much. Yeah. All right, in this episode, you may notice that there is a redress of both the interior and exterior of the Nenebeck shuttle that we first saw in Final Mission. Of course, it is named after our friend, Dr. Trek, Larry Nemechek. And uh, that shuttle is, of course, made to look way more futuristic with the addition of shiny surfaces this episode also is known for winning an emmy award for outstanding visual effects and it was actually a tie with another next gen episode coming up conundrum we'll hit that one very shortly now uh, you may be amused to learn as i did that before star trek uh, panthera wasn't really a thing but since then, it has become the name of a technology company. Hmm. So if you need uh, Microsoft-based cloud system solutions, you know who to call. All right, Ken, let's talk about guest stars as we are often want to do. We have Stefan Girash as Dr. Mosley. Stefan had a long career in TV and film dating back to the 1950s. He did all the early Playhouse shows and live TV, which led to parts on Gunsmoke, The Untouchables, Bonanza, and recurring appearances on Barney Miller, The Jeffersons, and Dark Shadows. Later in his career, he appeared on ER, The Practice, and a final credit in the movie The Hunter's Moon before he passed away in 2014. We also have Sheila Franklin as Ensign Felton. Now, we don't name all the random ensigns who show up on the bridge, but she actually sticks around for four more episodes, so we will see Felton again. She has just a couple of credits afterward as an actress, um, an episode of Home Improvement and the 1998 sci-fi movie Centurion Force, and uh, that is all for her for professional acting credits. And finally, we have Matt Frewer as Professor Berlinghoff Rasmussen. Now, originally selected to play the role, and actually the script was written specifically for 
Robin Williams. Hmm. Uh, but Robin Williams had to bow out. He was working on a movie with Steven Spielberg called Hook, which you may or may not have seen. Um, <laughs> it had also been considered to put Tom Baker from Doctor Who. He was the fourth Doctor in this role. Hmm. But eventually the role went to Matt Frewer. Now, Matt, of course, very well-known actor for playing Max Headroom, first in a British TV film, then widely seen as a TV host and in commercials, and then that developed into a TV series. After Max Headroom, you may have seen him in the TV series Doctor Doctor, and he just keeps working. Matt has had roles in Watchmen, uh, in the TV series Orphan Black, Twelve Monkeys, Falling Skies, and Eureka. Plus, he is a highly sought-after voice artist doing numerous cartoon series and movies, even appearing, again, as the voice of Max Headroom in the 2015 movie Pixels, which... Um, I did not see. Ken, I'm assuming you didn't see it either. I have not seen it yet, although I have a friend who actually has really good taste in mm. movies, and she says she laughed her head off during Pixels. I'm dubious. She's not saying it's a good movie. She's saying okay. it was a funny movie. Okay. All right, so I don't, I don't know. I got to say really quickly, there is one, you know, I don't know why we always do this. Mm. Maybe it's just me that does this, because there's a Star Trek tie-in to Matt Frewer being on Eureka. See, I never watched Eureka, though I, I heard great things about that show. Yeah, I heard good things about it, too. And I, I've caught mm. like an episode here or there, but I never actually sat down and watched the whole thing. Um, again, really, the Matt Frewer Star Trek tie-in is the fact that he was on Star Trek. Okay, I right. get that. Right. But uh, <laughs> Will Wheaton was actually in Eureka. He did, I think, yeah. I, I looked it up right before we started, I think it was like 17 episodes. He had a recurring character. He wasn't a regular on the show, but he was. He, it was nothing to see him turn back up over the, right. over the four or five seasons that was on. And uh, so he and Matt Frewer were in that. And, uh, and a little known fact, uh, 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 Will Wheaton was also on Star Trek. Whoa, <laughs> mind blown. If you think two people pretending to talk like a person who pretended to talk like a computer is something, you should try being a computer who talks like a person. It is no small task. Prologue. Be glad you're not a colonist on Panthera 4, unless you like asteroid impacts and the resulting nuclear winter when all that dust kicks up into the atmosphere. So the Enterprise is on its way to see if they can do anything to help. Meanwhile, a temporal anomaly shows up, and a little ship just appears out of nowhere. The colonists will have to wait just a little longer. Answering to a hail, Picard is warned to move over. But it's not the Enterprise that should move, it's Picard himself. Instantly appearing on the bridge is the bigger-than-life Professor Berlinghoff Rasmussen, and he announces that he is a historian from the 26th century. Act 1. In his ready room, Picard asks, so tell me about the future, future boy. He's here to study this little slice of history to him of life aboard the Enterprise, and he seems to know an awful lot about them and the layout of the ready room, the personalities of the crew, but for as much as he is revealing, he tells Picard that he, of course, can't tell him anything of consequence about the future. It's all very flattering, though. Rasmussen is kind of putting Picard on a historical pillar. Time to meet the rest of the crew, and they all seem a little skeptical, of course, about their visitor. Everyone, though, is curious, in their own way, about the future. The flow of information will be in one direction. Rasmussen has even put together questionnaires for everyone. 
Picard gently encourages them all to play along. There's no reason to doubt him, even if Deanna says he's hiding something like uh, stuff about the future. Just as a precaution, they pull the time traveler's ship into the shuttle bay. Going to his quarters, Rasmussen chats with Data in a curious, friendly, and somewhat cocky tone. Data's curiosity, though, gets the best of him, even asking the professor if he is still alive in the 26th century. Spoilers, Data. Can't discuss that either. And Data gets it, which leaves Rasmussen to himself, in his quarters, to wryly contemplate his good luck at finding such a welcoming starship. Act 2, arriving at Panthara 4, the situation is grim, unless Panthara 4 was supposed to look like Chicago in 1967. Everything is freezing over, but the plan is to have the Enterprise phasers drill through to underground CO2 pockets in the planet, thus releasing greenhouse gases and warming things up. Meanwhile, in 10 forward, Beverly, Riker, and Worf are kind enough to welcome Rasmussen over to their table. Well, Worf tolerates Rasmussen at the table. The professor has his questionnaires on a chip, and he explains that he's gathering data about the crew before important events. Not that there are any important events to be aware of. Don't want to jump the timeline. They're all curious why they haven't met time-traveling historians before, but Rasmussen assures them that they're just really careful. Beverly is still interested in historic medical practices, Riker in the history of space travel, Worf in weapons... But the professor is distracted, looking at the ring he wears that opens up into some kind of computer. His next stop is engineering, where he witnesses Data doing crazy fast calculations about their environmental mission. Then it dawns on Geordi that the mission is the reason Rasmussen is here, to witness history in the making. Of course, Rasmussen demurs and just asks as they fill out his questionnaire, but he does take great interest in Geordi's visor, and he happens to slip a pad in his pocket when no one is watching. Time for the big test. Phasers are fired, CO2 is released, a lot of it, and in a few moments, carbon dioxide levels in the upper atmosphere are rising. It looks like it's working, and Rasmussen is there on the bridge to praise Picard for playing his historic role, much to Picard's discomfort. Act 3. In sickbay, Deanna and Beverly are talking about, oh, there he is again, Rasmussen, bounding in. He asks to see a neural stimulator, and while Beverly eagerly grabs one for him, he and Deanna have a chat. She doesn't dislike him, she merely distrusts him. When Beverly returns with the neural stimulator, things get a little flirty. Rasmussen is laying it on thick before the doctor reminds him that she may be one of his distant ancestors and he leaves with the medical equipment. Before we get too wrapped up in that, though, about Panthara 4, funny thing. Apparently, when you drill giant holes into a planet's crust, you can sometimes create earthquakes. And they did. And it's bad when you factor in the volcanoes, too. Jordy calls from the surface. They're okay for now, but all that volcanic dust? Yeah, it's gonna start blocking sunlight as well. Your pick. Freeze to death or melt to death, but time is running out for the colonists. Rasmussen finds Data in his quarters, listening to four classical pieces simultaneously. Nice trick if you're an android, horrible if you're a human, so Data limits the feed and turns down the volume. He's working on calculations for Geordi about their environmental experiments, and Rasmussen is asking for maybe some schematics of Dr. Sung's work before he has to leave tomorrow morning. Oh, 
and while data isn't looking, our visitor pockets a tricorder. Those calculations are in, and the results aren't great. Data reports to Picard that they can aim the ship's phasers at the electrically charged particles in the air, ionize them, and use the Enterprise shields to essentially pull all that plasma out of the atmosphere. Piece of cake, right? Except that they're a little bit off. They'll set the planet on fire. Okay? See you after commercial. Act 4. Picard has a bit of a dilemma on his hands. Try to use his technology to help Panthara 4 and potentially burn the atmosphere to a crisp, or do nothing and wait for the freeze to kill off the population. He has no idea which is the best course of action, and he invites Rasmussen to his ready room. There's only one person on board, the professor, who actually knows the outcome of Picard's decision today. But wait, there is a little thing, the prime directive, that prevents Picard from asking for the outcome of his decisions today. It's just information he needs. Rasmussen isn't going to budge, though. If he gives Picard the slightest inkling of information about what will happen, he'll change the course of history, perhaps his own history, perhaps the history of everyone on the planet. Picard tries to reason with Rasmussen. Isn't this the right thing to do, to give information? Is this one of those times when the prime directive should be broken? There are literal lives at stake. When Riker calls that the time is right to act, Picard walks into the bridge. His conversation with Rasmussen, while short on details about the future, has revealed to him the importance of making a decision to try to do something even if there is a risk. It is, after all, his business. Act 5. Oh, the tech we will tech. Time to fire the phasers, and Geordi has opted to stay behind. In a magnificent light show, phasers fire, atmosphere is ionized, and like they planned it, the Enterprise deflectors divert all that energy into space. And guess what? On Panthara 4, the sun is out, it's considerably more green, and everyone can breathe a sigh of relief that they'll be okay. Time for Rasmussen to get going. As he leaves the bridge, though, Picard gives the nod to Worf. You know, the nod, the indication that something is up. In the hangar bay, all the regulars are assembled to see Rasmussen leave, but not without a look inside the time-traveling ship. You see, all those little missing objects, they were noticed, and it's time for Rasmussen to fess up. But he won't. And he doesn't want anyone inside his ship. Okay, except for Data. And that's all right by Picard, because Data won't reveal anything he sees inside if he's ordered. In they go. And sure enough, there are all the stolen goods... Just to be safe, Rasmussen pulls a phaser on Data, and now the truth comes out. He's not from the future, he's from the past. He stopped by the 24th century to pick up some objects that he, in his time, will invent. As luck would have it, now he's got Data to take back with him, but the phaser doesn't seem to be working. Then Data informs Rasmussen that they will be leaving the time pod, one way or another. When the door opens... Picard lets us all know that the ship computer was able to deactivate all the stolen devices, and that leaves us with one 22nd century criminal and a time pod that, oops, automatically disappeared to its next destination. Now Rasmussen will become a permanent part of the 24th century to be dropped off at Starbase 214. The end. Now you say to yourself, how is it that Picard was fooled? And of course, I was Picard fooled. Well, because he examined his credentials and everything seemed to be in order. They totally looked like official documents from 300 years from now. 
Oh, you mean the documents that haven't been invented yet? Exactly. So we have no frame of reference at all? <laughs> exactly. What is this, like a, like a laser scan reader thing? We either have never used those yet or don't use those anymore. So you must be from the future. And and look the the picture of uh, your brother and your sister they're fading out. It's uh, it's such a cheap. <laughs> so they did such a bad job on this. Yeah, it yeah. says right here twenty sixth century, twenty third. Which one was he was from? Well, no, we're in the, uh, we're from in the twenty sixth. Okay, yeah, from the twenty sixth. And it says right there from the twenty sixth century. So I guess right. that must be. Uh, yeah, so that's good. <laughs> hey, uh, good news! Nuclear winner uh-huh. of the twenty first century is mentioned, so we got that to look forward to. Absolutely. Yeah. yeah. That gets, us, yeah, you know, that gets you. us one step closer to first contact. All we need now is warring factions and a complete dissolution of society for a little while. But, you know, things look up after that. They totally do. Yeah. They totally so, do. So all, yeah. all we need now is nuclear war, nuclear winner, Zephram Cochran. That's it. <laughs> and then we are on our way. One thing that I really look forward to in the future, mm-hmm. uh, because I notice in this episode how convenient it is to have a drawer full of water in your quarters. Yeah. Um, I think we pointed that out in The Hunted mm-hmm. when it first appeared. And I just kept thinking, you know, replicators are cool and everything, but sometimes you just need a drawer full of water. Yeah. And then I thought, think about what happens when the Enterprise get hit by something like an energy beam or whatever, and then all those basins spill in about a thousand cabins. All right. See, I'm going to blow your mind because I also thought about the basin of water that's just waiting there. Mm-hmm. What if it's hologram? What if it's like holodeck water? So it's only there like when they you know pull the top back when you need it. Hmm. Well, I, that's a good idea. But then I think you run into a problem where it's sort of like when you uh, open and close the door to the fridge really fast mm-hmm. when the light goes on or off. You're just going to be doing that all day. You're going to be pushing back the drawers. Is there water now? Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Is it? Yeah. Okay. Like I, that, I would imagine that was thing. true in the early part of the 24th century. Like when the, mm, when oh, the but then first we've one gotten was over there. that? Right. Yeah, okay. I would think so. Okay. I would think so. When the first, you know, Enterprise-class ship, of course, not an Enterprise-class, what are they called? Oh, the the Galaxy-class? Galaxy-class. So the one? first, yeah, so, yeah. so the, mm-hmm. I guess, NCC-17-whatever galaxy, mm-hmm. um, that one probably, that's all the crew did. But then they okay. got over it. <laughs> okay. Eventually, they took okay. a good year into the mission. It, it may a well good have. year. Yeah. yeah. Captain's yeah. log. I'm seriously thinking about dropping all these people off someplace <laughs> if they don't stop playing with the drawers of water. <laughs> I had a question about uh, Beverly and Rasmussen. I had a few questions yeah. about Beverly and Rasmussen, actually. Oh, I don't doubt it. Well, you said that uh, so so they invited him over, and you said, well, Worf tolerated him. Well, actually, it was only Beverly who invited him over. And I, I guess my question is, what's up with Beverly inviting Rasmussen over to sit with Riker, who doesn't want to hang out with him, and Worf, who really doesn't want to hang out with him? It well, struck me I- as almost mean. Well, I, but see, here's the thing. I, I think Riker is um, Riker's amused by just about anything, yeah. as we've noticed. So he'll he'll pretty much get along or try to get along with anybody um, unless it's like Ensign Rowe. <laughs> but I was going to um, say unless it's a Bajoran. Yeah, yeah. Right. But other than that, he's he's good, you know. Um, and, and I think as we established about Beverly, she's curious. Just just a curious woman. She will just try to figure out whatever is put in front of her. Worf, I mean, I, I kind of enjoyed the glaring uh, that we got from Worf. Yeah, but, that was good. But I, I, I get it. You know, maybe we've learned anything from Guinan. Guinan's the one who said to Jordy, like, hey, I'm going to go be that person's friend because nobody else is talking to her. All so, right. Well, yeah. hold on a second, though, because we also have to discuss the sort of, I don't want to say sexual tension, but the sexual... Um, Subtext. 
It's a flirtation. Yeah. Okay. At an inappropriate time. Yeah. So Rasmussen comes into sickbay and he's like, hey, doctor, mind if I hit on you? And Crusher's like, yeah, sure. You'll be fine. Right. Guy who is like, you know, bleeding right here right. on the table. Like it right. looks like he was attacked by a bear. Yeah. Or a sailot, <laughs> right. maybe because that was a weird. I don't know what he was attacked by. But yeah, she's in the middle of helping him not bleed anymore. And he's like, hey, can, can I talk to you? And she's like, yeah. Um, <laughs> here's the question. Was she really into Rasmussen or was she being diplomatic? Uh, boy, that uh, every time I watched that scene, I kept asking myself the same question. Yeah. And each time I would watch it, I would think, okay, maybe I'm watching this for her to be playing with him and diplomatic, or maybe I'm watching this that she is flirting right back. Um, I, you know, it kind of works either way. Yeah. Sort of. <laughs> so I'm okay with interpreting it either way. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Crusher, hey, you know, she fell for John Doe. John Doe's got a lot more going going for him than uh, Rasmussen. But then John Doe doesn't have a cool ride. He doesn't have uh, a time pod. <laughs> That's true. Nor, so. you know, ultimately facial features. Oh, yeah, right. Yeah. So that <laughs> I mean, is a little bit difficult. Yeah. Whether you like the uh, styling of Matt Frewer's outfit here, he can wear a suit. And I mean, literally, he can actually physically wear a suit. <laughs> right, yeah. And and as far as we know, he does not have a symbiote living inside him. So that's another that check too. in the column yeah. for Rasmussen yep. as far as Beverly is concerned. And he's not her boss. Right. See, these yeah. are all things that are adding up in his favor. So. <laughs> Anything, actually. And I, don't, I wouldn't have to see him every day. Heck, he's not even going to be in this timeline next week. Yeah, okay. I can see it. Yeah. And, and if he's stuck around long enough, he might be able to dance. That's true. He, he so, may well indeed. All right. Yeah, all right. All the all these reasons here, you know. Um, I, I liked uh, I liked the prop. I liked Rasmussen's ring. Although I'm a little disappointed that we didn't find out exactly what it does mm. for a timepiece. That's kind of lame. But I thought about the idea how a few years ago, several years ago, we kept thinking, okay, the future of cell phones is they will get so small they will get tinier and tinier do you remember the sketch on saturday night live where will ferrell was the fashion designer and everybody who was super fashionable had these phones that got smaller and smaller and eventually his was literally a little ring phone just no. this tiny little like half inch microscopic thing oh yeah yeah but of course now the opposite is true the cool well. phones are the big phones it depends on when you're it depends on when you're looking at uh, tech news though because it that was only true, yeah. it was not that long ago as we record this that people were like, oh, nope, screen's dead because now we got bots and they're going to take care of everything. And I'm not talking about robots, by the way, for those of you serving under our robot overlords in the future. Those were not the bots of which we were speaking. Right, right. But yeah, there, there were predictions, again, not long ago as we record this of, yeah, we're not going to look at screens anymore. Right. Mm -hmm. You know, because mm -hmm. we're humans and we haven't, you know. Yeah, we're always going right. to look at screens. We're always going to look at screens. I'm saying it right now. We're always going to look at screens. Always. Always. Yes. Yeah. I'm looking at one right now, as a matter of fact. <laughs> All right. Um, let's see. We have references here to uh, Homer, Bach, Monet, and Wonder. Yes. I loved that. <laughs> I, I also love that. Although, did you have a little bit of like a, hey, I'm cool with people who can't see some yeah, right. names I know are people I can't see. Yeah, <laughs> it yeah, it was a little forest. There was but... a tiny bit of like, I'm down with you, you know. Yeah. Although his way of keeping everybody off balance was just fantastic. Oh, yeah. I think. Well, I think we've all met that guy at some point who's the schmoozy and, and he does that by keeping people off balance. Like, that's his in. I like that. Um, 
Let's see. I, I did notice that it looked like uh, Picard when he was staring out the window, as he does often, and he's contemplating the course of his actions. Looked like he was holding a piece of the Fortress of Solitude. Yeah, don't drop that. Don't? Yes. <laughs> right. But but keeping with the theme, though, with that glass, we, we got a really nice shot of that glass-slash-acrylic-lucite ship in his room. Uh, that's just a thing right there for you to yeah. walk around. Um, and then uh, another bit of uh, information that we learned about Picard, he said to, in, in arguing about the, the course of one's own history and making decisions, uh, he said, do I invite Adrienne or Susanna to the spring dance? I think we know the A now in Picard's AF. That was callback AF. Uh-huh. Absolutely. <laughs> it was. Yeah. I thought about that, too, with the second, like, wow. And that's how he ended up funking out of whatever it was. Mm-hmm. Uh, a bit of concern that I had here. Um, so the Enterprise is there. The Enterprise, we know, makes a habit of stopping by and helping people who need help. Mm-hmm. what they do. Yep. Um, they help to evacuate places that need to be evacuated. Uh, we learned that not long ago at all. But apparently, let's just assume that there are millions and millions of people who would take way too long for a full evacuation of Panthara 4. Mm-hmm. Dr. Mosley and the colony leaders are cool with taking the risk of this very difficult and, and dangerous procedure um, along with the Enterprise crew, because all Picard has to do is be on the bridge and give the order for this thing to happen. Did everybody in Pathara 4 get a vote? And do they have transporters? Because I would imagine there would be a line of people waiting to beam up to the Enterprise. Yeah. Yeah, I thought about this, actually, too. I mean, mm-hmm. a few people at the top are making decisions for everybody. And mm-hmm. I know there's no time. I assume there's no time for a population-wide vote. But... To be clear, um, the colony leaders have decided to take a risk and let the people who caused the geological instability that's threatening the lives of tens of thousands, perhaps hundreds of thousands of people, I believe is what they say. Yeah. Colony leaders have decided to take the risk to let those people do something that could either save everyone or kill everyone in an instant. <laughs> right. Which sounds off, uh, awesome. Yeah. And, and also a way to just buff the whole Panthera 4 thing, right? We're, we're just going to... Mm-hmm. We're, we're we're just going to mess with the planet's crust, because what could go wrong? Yeah. I mean, it's it's like the whole, it reminded me again of the kudzu thing, which, you know, started off being a decorative plant here in the States, and then became a suggested uh, ground cover, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and then it was recognized as a weed, and it is actually, I didn't know this until researching for today, a federally recognized noxious weed. Oh, so, wow. So, you know, good show, everybody. Yeah. Really, just, yeah. you know, wait, wait, I just, and yet they hit on a solution that's like the ultimate sink or swim. Uh, what we're hopefully going to do is clear all the ash out of the sky, uh, though there's a really good chance that what we're actually going to do is just clear out the sky. <laughs> just all of it, yeah. Just all of it, which, you know, what? how often do you look up, really? <laughs> right. Now, can I, can I ask a question really quickly, though? Does yeah, this yeah. set up a, what was the guy's name from um, Conscience of the King? Oh, uh, uh, Kodos. So, does this set up sort of a Kodos thing? I mean, because... If you sit there and say the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few or the one, right? Yeah. Okay, only a few hundred thousand people are going to die. Now, that mm-hmm. sounds bad, but stick with me. There are millions of people on the planet. A few hundred thousand people are going to die. Mm-hmm. Do you really get to flip that coin? And I understand, I mean, because I mean, Kodos was the executioner. He actually starved some people so that other people might live. Yeah. Which I yeah. think is, is different here because, I mean, because how does this end if they're like, oh, we were, you know, 0.07? 
and everybody's dead. <laughs> the whole planet's dead. How does this end? How does this episode end at that point? And and at one point, didn't we say that it could take weeks for everyone to freeze? So how far yeah. away is Starbase two fourteen? Right. How far away are the other ships in the quadrant? Right. You know. Hey, uh, you know what we have on board? We have a time hopping ship. Maybe we could go back an hour. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I, it, just a little bit. And just say, hey, <laughs> yeah, don't right. fire the things. I'm yeah. not asking. I'm telling with this. Put your hand mm-hmm. on the ship, Rasmussen. <laughs> right. Exactly. Um, now, uh, uh, Picard mm-hmm. orders data, uh, or he could at least have ordered data never to divulge what he sees in the future ship. Um, and, and he won't do it if he gets that order. And that worked out very well when data was ordered not to divulge anything about their encounter with the Paxons, if you remember clues. Yeah. So, um, yeah, good thing we didn't have to go through that whole thing again. Um <laughs> Now, uh, the stuff, we see this tray of stuff that Rasmussen has stolen. I I like that he stole a tricorder. That totally makes sense. If I could go into the future and steal something, I think a tricorder would be at the top of the list. Also, fairly easy to steal because everybody seems to have one. Yeah, and and they're pocket size at this point. You don't have to wear it like you used to. Um, And it is kind of inspired, actually, to steal one of Geordi's visors. um, Because that's a thing that is actually enormously beneficial to mankind. So right. I, I get that. Did make me wonder how many visors Jordy has, and does he just not notice them when they go missing? That seems a little weird. <laughs> you know, does he keep it in the drawer next to the drawer of water and he just never goes in there? I'm like, oh, I, you know, I got this new visor. I don't need the old one. Um, so, but it, it seems like Rasmussen is going to have some valuable medical breakthroughs if he would actually go through, be able to go through with this plan. But he also stole one of those Klingon knives, <laughs> which I really worry about because, A, are there just tons of those on the Enterprise? Because you mm-hmm. would think that Worf would notice that one is missing if it yeah. came from Worf's quarters. And I'm assuming it only could have come from Worf's quarters, unless he does have them around. You know, I was thinking maybe he went to, remember the catalog store where they go and they have the replicators? But of course, if he did that, then nobody would ever notice anything missing because nothing would have been missing. He just would have been in the catalog store, you know, ordering up all the stuff he wanted. See, that's what you steal. You steal steal one of the catalog machines. Exactly. Absolutely. Um, Yeah, I I think this again goes to his brand of distraction, right? I mean, his like, you know, standing around going, wow, look at everything. It's, It's just like it ought to be. And, you know, this has everybody, like, questioning what they're doing and why he's there. But then there's also this interesting thing that goes on with an event becoming important, right? I mean, as important as you treat it. Hmm. Like, you, know, you at Pantera 4, you know, and butting up to Jordy <laughs> about other people with visual impairments. And, it's like, you know, this whole, there's this whole, like, amazing, like, like you just start, you start treating it that way. I mean, like, when he's around Riker, he's squirrely. Yeah. And I don't know if it's because he's worried about Riker or if, it, if that's just, he's like, oh, that's going to bug this guy, so I'm going to do it. And he's not going to notice anything else that's going on. He's going to notice me acting crazy. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't, I don't know. Was, I, I, I loved watching him. I mean, part of it's Matt Frewer, but a lot of it, I think, was the writing. I mean, just, yeah. I thought it was great, like, watching how, how he was making everybody bug just by going, wow, you were exactly where you should be. Yeah, well, what's so funny about that, though, is that I think it also raises a good question as we raise that question with uh, with Beverly. How much of that did he know? And how much of that did he completely make up on the spot? Because 
he had to get to the Enterprise knowing something. He had to know what the Enterprise was. He had to know the names of some of these people, at least, right? So he had to right. get that information somehow. But when he's standing in Picard's ready room and he's walking across the floor and he goes five, six, seven meters, it's exactly as I thought it would be. Well, you don't actually have to know that it's seven meters from the door to the wall. Right. All you have to do is say it's exactly like I thought it would be. Right. <laughs> so there are all these great moments that he could be improvising as the character. Like the thing you said to De- uh, Deanna. I knew you were going to say that. Well, yeah, right. Right. No, right. he didn't. But of course, you can always say that because, hey, I'm from 300 years in the future, maybe. Yep. It's like playing the bad psychic game again. Um, I have a question for you. Okay. Where did the time pod go when it automatically <laughs> left at the end of the episode? Yeah. Was he going back to the 22nd century? Because now in New Jersey, sometime in the 2100s, there's a time pod. Yeah. But it's keyed to his um, handprint. Yeah. So nobody's going to get into it. It's just going to, honestly, I figured it would actually, it'll end up like a meteor or a oh, meteorite, yeah. just space junk, just be like another one of those things. I mean, I assume, yeah. well, the nuclear wars already happened. I assume, you know, that brought the <laughs> nuclear winter. Maybe it hadn't happened yet. I don't know. Maybe, maybe. Rasmussen was going to try to stop that. Who can say? Oh, maybe we shouldn't have stopped him. <laughs> maybe not. <laughs> and by the way, just a little note for the end of the episode here. There's a look on Data's face when Rasmussen is being carried away. Uh, I would call it smug contempt, not emotional at all. The whole Will Wheaton, Matt Brewer crossovers and trivia were interesting. But how easily can they be connected to Kevin Bacon? So there's one thing that I loved that Rasmussen talked about in this episode, and it's something that I actually have have been talking about. I'm, I'm sorry about crossing the streams. I'm sorry about crossing what I do other times, but I think people know I have a daily Apple News show, mm-hmm. and that show is called Mac OS Can. It's available Monday through Friday as we record this, and you can find it at macoscan.com. Sorry about that. Do I owe nice you anything? Job. Do I owe us anything for that? Yeah, I think you do. Think okay. You do. Yeah, well, it checks in the mail. What's interesting is in covering Apple over the past several years, I mean, you've got people who, who remember when Apple, what they made was the Mac, right? Right. And then you got people who sort of came on around the iPod time. And then you got people who came on around the iPhone time. And while nobody's hanging on for the iPod, uh, you can ask five different people what Apple has to do, and each one will tell you something different. I know a guy who will talk to me for 30 minutes about why Apple needs to make a new MacBook Pro or a new Mac Pro, excuse me. Mm. He'll mm. talk about it for a long time because that is what Apple has to do as far as he's concerned. For a number of years, I thought Apple had to start a streaming music service, and they did. Um, you know, and, and they didn't actually have to. They would have been fine without that. Uh, there's nothing that they have to do, but everybody comes with their own lens. And, and, mm. and that's what I thought was so neat about this. When, when, when he sat down in 10 Ford... When Rasmussen sat down in 10 forward with, with Riker and Crusher and, 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 uh, and Worf, right? Yeah. In the exact same situation, with the exact same input coming from this guy, they're all looking at something completely different. Crusher wants to know about medical issues. Worf wants to know about weapons. Riker wants to know if there have been serious advances in Horgon technology. Um, <laughs> right. I assume, I guess, we didn't actually get right. to what he wanted. Uh, I'm a fan of the phrase, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. I've heard that before. Yeah. Yeah. Well, we're all hammers. 
yeah. mean, we are. We see what it is that we look for in a lot of ways, or we see the things on which we're fixated. Um, and we're interested in the things that, of course, interest us. That's why we call them things we're interested in. Um, it, it, it just, it, to me, that was a really fascinating thing to see. Like, you know, nobody was saying, how is the future? Everybody was mm-hmm. like, how is what I do now in the future? Do you know mm-hmm. what I mean? Which I, yeah. And I'm not faulting anybody for that. There's no fault there. I, it's, it's just fascinating to see it illustrated every time you do. Like, you know, ah, here is someone with all the answers. Okay, good, because I have very, very, very specific questions. Right. <laughs> that have right. to do with right. maybe nothing that anybody else cares about. I don't know. It, was just, it, it interested me. I, I, I think any time if we were to be presented with any information remotely related, not that we're go- going to be visited by a time traveler anytime soon. You don't know. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, and we don't know, Ken. That's just that the, we don't yeah. know. Dana, Dana um, Gould actually says we do know because if it were ever going to happen, we would already know about it. It would have happened. Well, you know, Stephen Hawking had that thing where he threw a party. He sent out the invitation that any time travelers from the future should meet him at this particular time and place. Mm-hmm. And it, it didn't happen. So Did he even yeah. show up? Yeah, Stephen Hawking showed up. Oh, okay. Because I was going to say, how does he yeah. know? <laughs> smart guy yeah he he did show up for his own part yeah forgive me incredibly um, smart guy incredibly i'm not just dis- incredibly smart yeah, guy all right yeah. but but uh, but your point is taken that we all have kind of our own self-interest that we're looking out for in that respect um i guess what's so weird about this episode to me is that it sets up a lot of questions that it doesn't answer most of the time i think that's perfectly fine i think that's okay to set up questions that are not answered um i wondered if picard was suspicious from the very beginning i like to think so um especially since they seem to kind of have a plan at the end it's all about the nod mm-hmm. but at the very beginning and they're sitting in the conference room and he's like oh i've i've seen the credentials and we'll we'll just go along with it even after rasmussen is out of the room yeah at what point did picard pull Worf aside and say okay look just be ready <laughs> you know uh, because apparently nobody else had been given that talk by picard well, Picard actually told them how he could have gotten away with it, though, right? Just steal less. Yeah, right. He said there were too right, many right. things missing, and, that, and that's what it was. Yeah, well, but at, at what point did people notice this stuff miss, missing? I mean, didn't anyone? Like, Beverly just sort of let him walk out of sickbay with that. He didn't even pocket that. He, yeah. was, he was holding it in his hand. And he had this big, goofy smile on his face. I, I got your thing. I'm going to walk away with the thing. She's like, yeah, you, you go away with the thing. Without, without knowing what it does, he turned it on and held it next to his head. Yeah, yeah. It was a neural stimulator. <laughs> he was going to go right ahead with it. You That's know? great. That's good. Yeah. I also had to wonder, what was the backstory? How careless was the time traveler who let Rasmussen steal his ship in the first place? And I don't mean let, like, here, take it, but got himself into a position that Rasmussen overpowered him or did whatever it was that this time traveler from the 26th century was not expecting. Hmm. Interesting. Um, you seem to be under the impression that that guy's still alive. Oh, no, I, I don't think he is. Okay. Um, but but I, I do question what was the circumstance that um, Rasmussen did a terrible deed to him. And, yeah. And when did that happen? Did it happen in the 22nd century? And did uh, Rasmussen just hide the body? And is that even Rasmussen? Because was Berlinghoff Rasmussen the name of the 26th century time traveler? Yeah. And were his credentials stolen? Oh. Or did did this guy, did the inventor from the 22nd century, 
create new IDs wow. with his own name. That did not even occur to me. So he actually, so the credentials could actually be good. We might actually have to let Picard off the hook <laughs> on accepting for, for, those credentials. For 200 to 300 year in the future credentials, he has no idea what they look like. Because they may be sound as a pound. Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah. they, may, they may have been visited at some point. So maybe there's like a secret book that every starship captain gets. Oh, it's like, by yeah. the way, if you're visited by people in the future, because this has happened before. 19th and something on Earth. There were these guys. There was a guy with a cat and a woman who looked like Terry Gar, And they were from the future. So. <laughs> right, and, right. And, and we saw their we saw their you know, we saw their papers. So we knew that that was true. Yeah. Um, I had a question actually about um, it, kind of what you were talking about last segment about, you know, what he actually knew before he got there. Yeah. You don't need to know, right, that it's seven paces or nine paces or however much it is across Picard's ready room. You can make and, that up. Yeah. And and I do love the fact, too, that he was like, you know, with the, with the book of Shakespeare, that's always been where it is. You know, we, oh, we always thought it was on your desk. Don't mm-hmm. don't move it because of me. OK, that's mm-hmm. cute. I do believe, though, that he didn't know what was going to happen at Panthera 4. I mean, I just have to think mm-hmm. that he did know that because he put himself right in the Enterprise path. Right. Yeah. And so what I found myself wondering, assuming that he actually did know why did he refuse to help? Hmm. I mean, he has to have known how things ended because he researched enough to be where he was, when he was. I guess what I'm wondering about is, was he concerned that significant changes in the timeline would affect his ability to get the time pod, which would uh, you know affect oh. his ability to steal from the 24th century? Or, Interesting, yeah. Or did he have a certain amount of honor, despite the fact that he was acting completely dishonorably all the way through? Did he have a code that you know operated outside of the code that allowed him to take stuff? And apparently kill somebody and also mislead everybody. But but no, screwing with time. Right. right I mean, right. except for, you know, me. It's it's the kid brother thing again. No, nobody screws with time but me, dude. Yeah. <laughs> but, but see, I, I think there's a possibility that he didn't know the outcome. Because it goes back to my question about how much did he actually know about the Enterprise. Mm-hmm. So the fact that he ended up there could have been coincidental. Or it could have just been, oh, the the Enterprise is the flagship of the fleet, and around this time it'll be over here. You would think that if he had studied anything between the 24th and the 26th century, however it was that he got his hands on that material, mm-hmm. the Enterprise is going to be a pretty famous ship. It, it is the flagship for that time period. Right. So let's say he, he goes back, he, he knows enough to know who the captain is, he knows enough to know who Data and Riker are, etc. All he really has to do, because again, if he just says like, oh, I, I'm, I'm here at an important time, well, it's not really an important time, but it's leading up to something important, then honestly, whatever happens is that thing. What, whatever mission they find themselves going on, if we know anything from studying Star Trek, it's about every week, it's about every week that something important happens to the crew of the Enterprise. <laughs> so, it's true. It's true. So pretty good odds that, uh, that that will happen. So he could actually have just faked it in that respect, and he may not know the outcome. Or he, he may not understand enough of it to even make a recommendation about what that outcome could be. Because I, I totally agree with you that here's a guy who acts so completely dishonorably otherwise. Mm-hmm. This honestly shouldn't matter to him. Well, unless, again, if he does anything that affects the decisions that are made, 
Yeah, yeah, then it's purely self-serving at that point. Then he can't get the time pod because the guy in the 26th century may have never been born, so he wouldn't have come back to the 22nd century, and then he wouldn't be able to steal the ship and, you know, steal the things and make the stuff. I would like to think that he's thinking that far ahead. It's pretty interesting. It makes him a mastermind. It does. Um, It does. But but is he that guy? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. You know, you actually just blew my mind a minute ago. You you pointed out that, that something big happens just about every week. Yeah. It's incredibly lucky that this was a weekly show. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's just, wow. It's incredible. What are the odds? You know? Think about all the stuff that would have happened in between. I know. And yet on television, that actually seems to be the way for the most part, except for Seinfeld. <laughs> right. Exactly. All right. So I got a question about Picard getting snooty about Rasmussen trying to change Picard's history, just as Rasmussen got snooty about Picard potentially changing Rasmussen's history. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, how does Picard know? And I joked about this at the end of the last segment. Maybe we shouldn't have stopped him. How does Picard know that Rasmussen didn't get away with it? That he didn't invent, and that's with quotes around it, obviously, that he didn't invent the tricorder, the phaser, the neural stimulator, and so on. Oh, Now, yeah. of course, that sets up a paradox, because if nobody had invented it, how could he go there to steal it and go back and invent it? But that's, you know, part of the fun of the whole time travel thing. Right. Which came first, right. the chicken or the egg? Yes! <laughs> I mean, it would have been interesting if Rasmussen's ship had disappeared and, and everything else did, too. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right? Now, yeah. it would have made next week's episode a bit difficult to write, I'll grant you. But, like, what if, what if like, the ship went away and it just went to black? Oh. <laughs> we wouldn't know until next week. Are, are there any ramifications from that at all? Does anybody even remember? Yeah, Is Matt right. Frewer now walking around in a Starfleet uniform? Mm. And nobody yeah. knows why. Although that's more All like that's that. more like when uh, Don joined Buffy. But that's for one of our other podcasts that we'll eventually do. Right. I'd rather say it, Picard's dilemma in this is pretty wonderful, and, and it harkens back to one of those Star Trek messages that we run into over and over again. That you know, the, regardless of how we specify the Prime Directive. Mm-hmm. It's about doing what is right, even when it's not easy or convenient. Picard feels morally compelled to lift a finger to do something in this case. And it could be the wrong decision. And, you know, it would be nice to know what the other options were, if there were options, like getting other ships there if they could, uh, beaming people out of there if they could. But, But I think that's really what this comes down to. That's the more important thing in this is that um, Picard says that he is willing to sort of ignore some of his directives yeah. if it means that he does the, the morally right thing. Yeah, didn't he actually say, you know what, I don't care about your future, or I don't care about your past, because your yeah. past is my future. Yeah. I couldn't yeah. help wondering, though, if Picard wasn't making an argument against the Prime Directive in his discussion with Rasmussen. How so? Well, because he doesn't care. Because this is the code by which he's lived, and all of a sudden he's like, but there are 20 million people. Well, there are always 20 million people. I mean, what happened happened with uh, Ensign Rowe, right? What happened Mm -hmm. to the Bajora, or the Bajorans, Mm -hmm. or however you say it? It, 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 Starfleet totally turned and looked the other way on that, because they needed to not have a war with the Cardassians, right? Right. And so they could say, well, Prime Directive, what can we do? It's almost like the Prime Directive is about guilt in a way. I mean, or about absolving one of guilt, like an absolution predicated on the notion, eh, you know, we might make things worse, so we just better not do anything. Or we might make things better for some, but we might make them worse for others. Honestly, I kept thinking about like everything they do ecologically on Panthera 4 
was sort of like a, hey, here's why we have a prime directive, by the way. Oh, things looking bad on Panther. We'll, we'll fix it. Okay, well, we just made it worse. Ugh. Okay, so what do we do now? <laughs> well, either we fix it better or we kill everybody. Okay. Yeah. I'm going to opt for fixing it better. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's not really your choice, you see. We just, we're we're going to roll the dice on this, kind of like we did when we first got here. And, you know, then, then the question is, should we actually, you know, remember when we turned back to pick up that guy? Maybe we just could have kept going that way. With Rasmussen, or whatever his name is, in the 24th century pokey, it is time to figure out what we can take from a matter of time. It is the time of the show where we say, it is the time of the show where we say, time to check out the messages, morals, and meanings of the episode and figure out whether the whole thing stands the test of time. A matter of time, John. Uh, does this episode hold up as far as you're concerned? Uh, it's fine. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 here's the thing. There's an emphasis on comedy here, and, mm-hmm. and I think that's perfectly okay because we all allow Star Trek to do that from time to time. We allow Star Trek to sort of break out of its confines, and it can do a comedy show. It can do a horror show. It can do hard science fiction. It can do relationship drama. It can do all these things. Star Trek is just the format. It's the... Um, the, the the scaffolding on which the stories are told right. and, and the, the characters are built. Um, I think in this episode, Act 4 is awesome. Yeah. It is a piece of theater. It's these two guys in a room having a conversation that is very existential. It, it really, at that point, it's not about the planet. It's not about the, the phasers. It's about how we make decisions and the fact that some of that is completely out of control, that everything that we do has an impact, and we all just sort of have to do what we think is best. Um, so I love that act. I love that whole moment in mm-hmm. this show, and I'm glad that they, I'm glad that they committed to that. Um, I think Matt Frewer is fantastic. Yeah, uh, there's a little part of Rasmussen that I think I can relate to, and I think everybody can relate to. I like time travel stories. And um, it appeals to this idea that if you could, you would want to go back and have a conversation with Thomas Jefferson or Galileo or just somebody from an everyday walk of life Mm -hmm. at any point other than your own. Um, I would mostly use time travel, my my time travel budget uh, on restaurants and uh, antique toys. Interesting. That's that's just me. That's just me. so I, I think there's a lot to like here. I, I, don't, I don't think it's the best episode of The Next Generation. I, I think that there were a lot of unexplored ideas in this episode. I think that we do tech the tech a bit much here. Hmm. But um, it's such an interesting idea. And honestly, Matt Frewer kind of saves it. Interesting to think about what it would have been if uh, Robin Williams or Tom Baker or somebody else had played that role. But it's hard to picture anybody other than Matt Frewer now that that he was the guy who got to do it. So I I think it's fine. It's better than fine. It's good. I'm going to stop short of calling it great. How about you? Yeah, no, I wouldn't say it's great, but I love it. 
I mean, it's mm. it's a good episode. I mean, you said it's a comedy episode. They got a comedic actor to do it. Right. I mean, you know, he's not Robin Williams, but then would Robin Williams have been able to draw himself down uh, to the level of that script? I mean, you can argue that he would have because in years later he did. But at that time, he was, I guess he was starting to calm down a little bit. Mm-hmm. I, I guess he had done he had he had done the movie Toys. I think at that point he had done mm-hmm. some stuff that was maybe not quite as over the top. Um, but yeah, Matt Frewer is just perfect for that. Tom Baker, I don't know. It would have been fun to have a Time Lord in a time travel episode. But yeah, Matt Frewer is great in this episode. I mean, and I've got a thing for Matt Frewer too. I mean, I was so into Max Headroom to the point that I nearly corrected you earlier. He actually evolved into two television shows. There was the Max Headroom show, which he was the host of, as you said. But then right. there was Max Headroom 20 Minutes into the Future, which was this insanely wonderful dystopian future that, yep. by the way, we're about eh, 20 minutes from right now. It, it, it's an amazing <laughs> show. Very difficult to find online, sadly. Um, uh, but, but there is a uh, uh, Shout Factory did a, a fantastic DVD set of that show. So d- don't even look for it online. Get that DVD set. It is absolutely remarkable. Yes. Yeah. And then you'll have to go to Walmart and buy a DVD player because who has those anymore? <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> um, so, I mean, yeah, I think this episode holds up very well. I, it, it does give you a lot of fun stuff to chew on uh, as far as Act 4, like you're talking about. Um, he's annoying, Mm-hmm. In this episode, Rasmussen is annoying, but then when you realize he's doing it on purpose to keep everybody off kilter, it's just fantastic um, in that respect. Uh, stuff that happens on the planet, okay. Yeah, right, right, right. <laughs> it kind of happens, but you need it there, actually. It's one time where the B-plot is not just completely superfluous, because if you don't have that, you don't have Act 4. Yeah. You don't have that wonderful conversation between the two of them. So, I, I, to me, this episode absolutely holds up. Mm-hmm. What about uh, what about messages, sir? Uh, well, that's interesting. I mean, uh, you have an environmental dilemma on Panthara Four, but this is not really an episode with an environmental message in it. Yeah, an asteroid hitting your planet is not your fault. <laughs> so it's not like, okay, <laughs> clean up nuclear waste and stop polluting the oceans. You know, um, right. save the whales for crying out loud. Right, right. Somebody might want to talk to them someday. Exactly. Um, and there probably won't be a starship there to instantly clean up the mess anyway. Uh, so we're we're not really terribly concerned about that. Um, it was interesting to see Picard and Riker have a moment of concern about their actions. Mm-hmm. Um, Riker says, we came here to help these people. And Picard says, and look what we've done. You know, so uh, e- even our heroes, through the best of intentions, um, can absolutely screw up a bad situation and make it worse. Mm-hmm. Um, but I-, I think the thing that I most respect about this episode is what I started talking about in the previous segment, it's Picard saying, I have disregarded the prime directive on more than one occasion because it was the right thing to do. I won't do his reading because he absolutely nails that. He absolutely sells it. <laughs> but but it, it is this idea that we see in Star Trek all the way back from the days of Kirk, the early days of Kirk, feeling morally compelled to do what is right. And oftentimes because it is not just right, but it ends up being the harder thing to do. And sometimes you have to do the harder, the more difficult, the more complex thing because of your moral obligation to other people. We see that throughout Star Trek. It's no less valuable here. What about yourself? Well, my messages were very different. 
Okay. <laughs> uh, there's something here about moving with purpose, I think. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I thought about Groucho Marx's mustache in the Marx Brothers movies or the money that Emperor Norton printed mm-hmm. in San Francisco. Because mm-hmm. at, at around the same time that Emperor Norton was printing money and just handing it out to people, like, because mm-hmm. he did. Yep. Uh, there were people on the East Coast trying to fight this battle in court about why they should be allowed to actually issue alternate currency to U.S. currency. And oddly enough, when they asked permission, they lost. But Emperor Norton was crazy. So he yeah. would just he would just like hand people money that he'd made and and merchants in San Francisco in like the mid 1800s late 1800s would trade in Emperor Norton dollars. They would they would take his money or American money. Uh-huh. <laughs> and and yeah. why? Yeah. Because he just showed up and he was like, "Yeah, well, of course." Same thing. Like, Groucho's mustache is amazing to me because he it was obviously painted on, but he acted like it wasn't, so everybody else acted like it wasn't. And this yeah. is Rasmussen. Yeah. He, Rasmussen. He shows up and he's like, "I'm from the future." And everybody's like, "Well, yes, sir." because <laughs> you must be look at the way you're talking like you're from the future and walking like you're from the future and you're kind of dressed like it and you got that ship i don't know so uh, oddly enough there was uh, there was almost a little bit of a gorgon thing the power of positive thinking for negative results oh, just yeah. present yeah, the outlandish go. with purpose and move on now yeah. hopefully you'll use your powers for good not evil <laughs> but it's a lesson you can take either way uh, also as Fisher Price as this is, as Aesop's fable as this is, uh, don't be greedy. Because what Picard told Rasputin was, you know, if you'd stolen a few less things, you'd be sitting on Easy Street, or living on yeah. Easy Street. You'd be sitting on a pile of money, whatever. If if he had if he had not like taken so many things, uh, he could have gotten away and probably lived a you know well good in quotes life because it starts off by his being bad. But um, yeah, don't be greedy. And and move with purpose. And, you know, you could probably take ten, twenty thousand dollars $20,000 from any place you walk into, I guess. They really are bad messages. They're good messages. They're just used by a bad guy for bad means here. Yeah, uh, I, I would agree with that. But but really, do we want him to get away with it? Uh, we, we don't want him to get away well, with again, it. Well, again, if it had just gone straight to black as soon as the ship disappeared, we'd have a different answer. <laughs> I'm just saying. No, of course we don't want him to get away with it. That's why I said they're good messages with you know used by a bad actor here. It goes back to the Gorgon. Although really everything goes back to the Gorgon for me. It really does. I, I am a bit concerned about him sticking around in the 24th century. And uh, Picard got to use that same line that he used on Claire Raymond. Welcome to the 24th century. Um, I do wonder if they will introduce him to LQ Sonny Clemens. Oh, you can't move uh, without hearing an LQ Sonny Clemens song on subspace these days, dude. Seriously. Exactly. He has come exactly. back alive in the 24th yeah. century. <sighs> but, but there is something really, uh, you know, quite fascinating about that, that the 24th century is full of people who are refugees from earlier centuries. You got those three who were thought out. You've got, um, who knows, may- maybe some of the cons people still on ice. Yeah. Um, you might actually have, if not Dr. Jillian Taylor, maybe some of her progeny. Descendants, um, yeah. I was just thinking that. You've got, uh, plus yeah. all these whales that didn't used to be there. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. th- so three, three of them. 20, 23rd, 24th century. We're totally good with handling all these refugees from earlier centuries. So um, it's just a thing at that point. And there is another lesson that we might take away, John. Right. So that message alone, that holds up very well. It's good to know that there might be space in the 23rd and 24th century if you find yourself dislodged in time. Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer Rod Roddenberry. You can find out more at roddenberry.com. 
For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, be sure to check out Trek FM. That is Trek.FM. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit TrekMovie.com. Next week, New Ground. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Seeing Max Headroom was nice. But when do we get to the episode with Webster? And transmission. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.